last year was a tough year for weddings. Because of the pandemic, many were cancelled, and so fewer than half the number of weddings took place in Ireland in 2020 than in the previous year, in 2019. But a man in Taiwan, he bucked that trend, because he got married four times last year. And even more bizarrely, each marriage was to the same woman. Over a period of 37 days, this bank employee married his wife four times, divorcing her three times in between each marriage. So why did he do that? Well, it was actually so he could maximize his honeymoon. In Taiwan, companies are legally obliged to offer eight days holiday to newlyweds. Eight days paid leave. So this guy had came up with this idea that he could game the system by marrying four times and so getting 32 days off on holiday for each of his four marriages. Now, unfortunately for him, the bank disagreed and they refused to offer him the 32, just offered him the eight he complained to the Labour Department and they were, and the bank was actually fined for not giving him all of his leave regulations. Then they, then they complained and this fine was later revoked and the man quit the bank, which you're not unsurprised about. But again, he's complaining to the Labour Department that his former employee still owes him 24 days of leave. Now, I'm sure that the Apostle Paul wouldn't encourage anybody to abuse the law in this way. But he did believe that there were many advantages of marriage. And as we'll see in this next section of his letter to the Corinthians, Paul believed that marriage is good. So we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, let's open it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 down to verse 9. And Philip is going to come and he's going to read to us this morning. Thanks, Philip. Good morning. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duties to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has a gift, another has that. 
Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Thank you very much, Philip, for sharing God's word with us. This section is the start of Paul dealing with questions that this church had sent to him, had written to him about. And the first one is about marriage. So Paul says, now for matters, the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Last week we thought about this problem of sexual immorality. Corinth was a place where the majority of people had rejected God's will for their lives. They were living in all kinds of depravity. But Paul called the believers to flee from that, to run away from that, and to honour God with their bodies. But it seems that some people in the church were doing the exact, were going to the other extreme. They were thinking, well, if God wants us to flee from sexual immorality, then we should just flee from sexual activity completely. So verse 1 literally says, as Philip read, it is good for a man not to touch a woman or not to have sexual relations with a woman. These people were teaching that in order to really live for God, in order to be more spiritual... To be more godly, it was better to live a celibate life, even if you were married. And there are some churches that kind of teach something similar today. Some speak about sexuality only in the context of sin. So they give the impression that there's something inherently sinful with it. Other churches, they elevate the celibate life as more spiritual than the married. And they do that by saying that some roles in the church are only available to those who are celibate. And of course, that's what happens within the Roman Catholic Church. So the question in this section is, is celibacy more spiritual, more godly than marriage? Is it the best lifestyle for a Christian? Well, first of all, instead of being against marriage, Paul recognised the benefits of it. So look at verse 2, please. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In a world where so many people reject God's call for purity in their lives, Paul said it's good for us to be married. That is, for one man and one woman to be in an exclusive, lifelong, faithful and loving relationship with each other. That's because Paul knew that marriage 
was a good gift from God to humanity. As we saw last week in the previous section, uh, Paul followed Jesus' example of looking back to the book of Genesis to understand what marriage really is about. That's when God instituted marriage. Marriage is not a human idea. It's not a man-made idea. Marriage is a God-given institution. So Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. That verse lays down, right at the start of the Bible, lays down God's design for marriage. First of all, as you see, there's a leaving of parents. A husband and wife are called to forsake all others and make each other their first priority after God, of course. So you have to leave parents. Then secondly, there's a uniting together. Marriage is not a casual acquaintance. Instead, it is a covenant relationship. Literally, the husband and wife are glued together into a lifelong commitment. And we're going to be thinking more about that next week. And in this commitment, the closest of all human relationships develop as two become one. Emotionally, economically, intellectually, spiritually, and physically. This is God's good design for marriage. And is given to us to bless us. One of those blessings is, is children. God's plan for human beings were, was to be, be fruitful and increase in number. Now, no, that's not always possible with couples. And sometimes it brings incredible heartache to these couples. But marriage is the context in which children are to be nurtured and cared for. But when God instituted marriage in Genesis chapter 2, that actually wasn't what was primary. That wasn't what was really up front as why God gave marriage. Instead, God said there that marriage was to provide the companionship that we need. So in the Garden of Eden, God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Up to that point in, in the creation account, God had said again and again that his creation was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. He created a perfect world of awe-inspiring wonder and majesty. And he placed Adam into that garden of bountiful provision, of amazing beauty, of satisfying work, and of communion with God. But there was a problem. On his own, Adam was lonely. 
There were emotional and intellectual and relational needs that could not be met. Even when Adam was in paradise, a perfect world. And so God provided a a woman for Adam to be his wife, to provide the companionship that he needed. But Paul also said in our, in our reading this morning, in verse 9, that marriage promotes self-control in our lives. About single people, he said, verse 9, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than burn with passion. And I'm sure you're all having a little snigger underneath your masks when you read that. Paul understood that God created us as sexual beings. And we have have powerful desires. And he lived in a culture where people let those desires lead them into sinful lifestyles. So Paul said that instead of being consumed by those desires, getting married provided a God-given opportunity for those desires to be fulfilled in a God-honoring way. But there's an even higher purpose, a greater purpose than any of those purposes for marriage. For that we need to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, that great passage on marriage. Please have a read it sometime later. I'll just read one verse. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The church is described as the bride of Christ. Jesus gave his life for us on the cross so that we could leave behind that life of slavery to sin and condemnation and death, and so that we could be joined with Christ in a covenant relationship, in a faithful covenant relationship with Jesus, so that we could be with Him in in intimacy and love. And one day Jesus is coming back for us again, for his bride, to take us to be with him in the home that he has prepared for us. And so the ultimate purpose for marriage is not to produce children, or to provide companionship, or to promote self-control. Rather it is to point to Christ. That's the ultimate purpose. It is to illustrate the exclusive, eternal, faithful, satisfying and loving relationship that we have with Jesus when we put our trust in Him. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of, an illustration of, a signpost to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul had an incredibly high view of marriage. 
He believed that it was a good gift from God. And that means that anybody who is married should fully live out God's design for it. And that includes physical intimacy. Soon after Randy and Victoria were engaged, Randy received bad news from his doctor. His kidneys were ruined and he needed a kidney transplant to save his life. Now usually family members provide the best match for a transplant, but none of Randy's family matched his profile well. So things didn't look good for him. But then the doctors found out that his fiancée was an identical match. So a month after this couple were married, in October 1994, Victoria gave her husband her left kidney in the first organ transplant, organ swap between a husband and a wife in the States. Now that's a, a unique situation in many ways. But yet, every marriage depends on husbands and wives giving their hearts and minds and yes, their bodies to each other. So look at verse 3 of our reading. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Celibacy is not God's design. It's not more spiritual. Usually a husband and wife should be physically intimate with each other. It's their marital duty, which I know it doesn't sound very romantic, but it's their marital duty because it's an expression of God's design for marriage. Of two becoming one. Now Paul does permit abstinence under very limited circumstances in this passage. Uh, Verse 5, he said, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, let me be clear. Paul is not trying to cover every imaginable situation within a marriage. There could be other physical or emotional or relational reasons why couples can't be together. Certainly nobody should use this this passage to force their spouse into a situation that they are unable for or uncomfortable with. That would not be the love that would be expressed that should be expressed within a, a couple, within a marriage. But this is Paul's general principle. Intimacy within marriage should be the norm. Unless they abstain from each other by mutual consent, so two people, the two people agree on this, for a limited time, doesn't say how long for, and the purpose is so they can focus on God. So they can take some time out to pray. Now Paul, he wasn't encouraging that. He wasn't telling every couple that they should do this now and again. Not at all. In fact, he said, I say this as a concession. Not as a command. 
It's okay to do this, Paul was saying, but it's not preferable. In part, this is because Paul knew the temptation that can arise from that. But it's also because he knows that that abstinence in marriage is not more honouring to God. Those people who were doing that weren't pleasing God more than the people who were not. In fact, Paul says that this absence could be depriving or stealing from your partner. Verse 4, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Now, I don't know if you've heard, but I've heard lots of people accuse the Apostle Paul of being prejudiced against women, of being chauvinistic in his teaching. But if you actually read what he's saying, that's ridiculous. Especially in this passage, where we see incredible equality expressed within marriage. So yes, the husband's body, or sorry, the wife's body belongs to her husband. But the husband's body also belongs to his wife. Marriage involves husbands and wives giving themselves completely to each other. It's not about selfishly taking something from somebody else. Rather, it's about selflessly giving of themselves to the other person. It's about expressing an unselfish, unreserved, unending giving of ourselves to the one that we love. Why did God design marriage that way? Well, because this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says this about Jesus. He is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus gave his everything for us. And so our marriages should reflect this love by giving ourselves completely to our spouses. Of course, this just isn't, shouldn't just be reflected in sexual intimacy. God's goal is this will characterize every aspect of our marriages. In every way possible, a husband and wife's goal should be to love each other and to lay down their lives for each other. It's to love each other as Christ loves them. Marriage is supposed to be empowered by and shaped by the love of Jesus. Now, of course, it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Uh, I'm sure my wife could tell, tell you guys how often it doesn't work out that way in our marriage. And even sometimes you have incredible difficulties within marriage. 
And we'll look at next week how Paul goes on to talk about the issue of separation and divorce and how, as a Christian, we should respond to these kind of difficult situations. But Paul's point here is that far from celibacy being the ideal or being more spiritual or being more godly, intimacy within biblical marriage is a wonderful gift from God that should reflect Christ's love that he expressed on the cross. But saying all that doesn't mean that marriage is for everyone. In fact, the Apostle Paul was single. He was not a married man. And he longed for more people to see the value of being single. So in verse 7 he says, I wish that all men were as I am. Don't know why Paul was single. It was strange for a Jewish man, especially somebody who was a rabbi or a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, not to be married. So some people think that he probably was a widower. That he'd gone through a bereavement, that his wife had died. We don't know if that's true or not. But whatever the reason for Paul's singleness, he did not see his singleness as a problem to be fixed. Instead he saw it as another good gift from God. So he wrote verse verse 8, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. This doesn't mean it's wrong if a Christian wants to get married. Paul gives believers the freedom to get married if that's what they choose. But this is because Paul wanted people to see the opportunities that he had in his singleness. That he believed he wouldn't have if he was married. Opportunities to serve God. We'll look at this in more detail in a few weeks' time because Paul goes into great detail about this later on in chapter 7 of Corinthians. But the key thing here is that being single as a Christian, either because we've never married or because we've been bereaved or because we've gone through the pain of divorce, Being single is not a second-class calling. In fact, singleness also points to Christ in our lives. We live in a world where to be single is often seen as a diminished life. Sexual or romantic fulfillment is often seen as essential to human flourishing. And so the prospect of not being married is seen as a life devoid of love and meaning and value. Those who are single are supposed to be pitied as lonely and empty. But the Bible rejects that idea completely. Jesus was single. And surely we would never say that his life 
was in any way less than full. And Jesus came to invite us into that fullness. Whatever our marital status. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So there's a guy called Sam Albury. He's a pastor who talks very openly about the fact that he is same-sex attracted. Has been since he was a teenager. And so he's committed himself to living as a single man. Because that's what he believes is honouring to God. And he wrote in his book, he wrote this, If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows its sufficiency. Let me say that again. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows its sufficiency. Marriage shows us the shape of the gospel. Because it's a temporary model, temporary because it's only for this life, and a signpost to the eternal covenant relationship that we have in Christ. But singleness, that shows the sufficiency of the gospel because it can state that because I've already got that relationship with Christ, I don't need that signpost. I don't need that model in order to live a life that is full of love and meaning and purpose. When the world tells us that we are incomplete if we don't have a partner, the single Christian shows us that we are complete in Christ. They declare that Jesus is enough. As he will be forever for all of us in heaven. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is enough? Have you come to that understanding? That he is sufficient for us to live a life that's to the full. So neither being married or being single is more spiritual. Both can point to Christ. Both can glorify God. So which is better? Well, for us, for each of us individually, it's the one that God has chosen for you. That's what Paul says in verse 7. Each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Marriage and singleness are both gifts that God gives as He decides. It is God who enables a Christian to honour God as a married person. And it's God who enables somebody to honour God as a single person. 
which one we choose should depend on God's will for our lives. It depends on what God has called us to. Because as believers in Jesus, we are called to serve Christ, to glorify Christ, to point people to Christ in whatever role that God has called us to. Or as Peter writes, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So marriage is a good gift from God. But so is singleness. So if we are married, then we are called to enjoy this good gift to the full by loving our spouses and giving ourselves to them. And so point people to the ultimate covenant relationship in Christ. And if we're called to be single, then we need to use that good gift to show the world that Christ is the only one who can truly complete us and give us that life, that life to the full. Let's pray. Father God, we really thank you. Thank you for the good gifts that you give uh, to us uh, today, Lord. Father, thank you for those of us who are married, for that gift of marriage, for all of the good gifts that, that you give to us in that marriage. And we pray that you'll help us, whether we are struggling or whether we're thriving in that marriage, you'll help us to, to step more and more into your design for our marriages. That we would be able to point people to Christ through that marriage, through that loving, faithful, covenant relationship that you have brought us into. And if we are single this morning, Lord, I pray that you'll help us in that singleness, not to listen to the, to the world that says that there's something wrong with us or there's something lacking in our life, but that we will truly believe that Jesus came to give us life and life to the full, that he is enough for us, that we are complete in him, and that we'll be able to express that and declare that to our world that's desperately seeking their satisfaction and their security in everything and anything else. Father, I pray that you will help us. Help us to accept the gift that you have given to us, whether it's marriage or singleness. And you'll help us to live that out to the full. And so point people to Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, so that we will be married to Him for all eternity. And He will fill our hearts with His love and with the satisfaction that goes beyond anything else that this world can offer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.